The Bible says that this hope of his coming should cause us to watch. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. The Bible indicates that to us that know him, it should purify us. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. It should make us united as Christians and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. It should cause us to evangelize. Occupy till I come. Occupy with loving your neighbor. Occupy. Don't sit down and say, the Lord's coming. I'm just going to sit here and wait for his coming. No. That's sin against God. That's displeasing to God. Go back to your school. Go back to your home. Go back to your church. Go back to your social obligations. And work as you've never worked. Occupy till I come. Go down among the people. Help the poor. Love your neighbor, no matter what race he may be. Give food for the hungry. Get involved in the world in which we're living as a light and a shining testimony for Christ. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. Live for him. And this burning hope within you should make you live more intensely for him than ever before with far deeper commitment to him than ever before. Thanks, Randy, for picking that out for us. Uh, encouragement to, uh, to be occupied, <clears throat> how we should be waiting and watchful for the return of Christ, which is wonderfully in keeping with today's message as we continue a series of messages on Jesus' letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, this morning's church we are going to get to is going to be located in the ancient city of Sardis. And Sardis was a church with a wonderful reputation. But as we're going to find out as we go through the message, that reputation was just the past. The present of Sardis was very different from its wonderful past, just as the reputation of the city of Sardis was one of past glory and then the present couldn't compare with it. What happens when... God expects us to be one thing, but over time, the fires burn low, the passion disappears, and we just become comfortable, and placid, and quiet, and sleepy. Well, that seems to be the nature of physical life. If you've ever visited uh, a continuing care facility, for instance, on a warm afternoon, you see the residents sitting in the sunshine, many of them in wheelchairs, and they drift into that wonderful sleep that seniors often do through the day. Well, sometimes I feel that that's what happens to churches as well. That's the concern of Jesus for the church in Sardis, as we'll see today. In the Sermon on the Mount, before Jesus encouraged us that we are salt and that we are light, posed the question, what happens if the salt is no longer salty? Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The salt they had in that time was, was rock salt. It was salt mixed with other minerals and so forth. And over time, the salt would disappear and you'd be left basically with gravel to season your food. And at that time, they would. They'd throw it on the road, just as we do today. We salt the roads. 
It's not good enough for the table, just good enough to be trampled underfoot. What happens if the salt loses its saltiness? Well, what happens, friends, is we find a church like Sardis. I didn't know what to call it. The bulletin says that I've called this morning the sleepy church, but call it for what Jesus calls it. Sardis is the dead church. It's the dead church. One of the things I've always been interested in is we've driven across the prairies, especially through the back roads of Alberta. In Alberta, you'll find on some of those back highways, those little paved roads, but uh, they're not important byways any longer. <clears throat> you find churches. Many of the churches are being kept up beautifully. They're painted. They have those beautiful onion domes of an Orthodox church. But you know there's no sign. Nobody meets there regularly anymore. It's a historical monument. And invariably next to the church is the cemetery. The cemetery in which the people who once worshipped in that church, shown the light of God's love in their community, were active and alive. They're now gone. They're dead. They've passed on. And the church is no longer what it once was. Unfortunate thing about Sardis is though they were a dead church, they didn't realize it. They thought things were going just fine until a letter from Jesus, their Lord and Master, came to them. May we, may we never wind up like those little churches you see in the back roads, empty churches with full cemeteries. Jesus writing to the church in Sardis addresses them in this way. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, hearkening back to John's vision of the glorified Lord on the Isle of Patmos, the seven stars we know about, these are the messengers, these are the angelos, these are the messengers, the bishops or the pastors of those important churches in Asia Minor. They're gods to place and gods to remove. They're God's servants. But the sevenfold spirit of God, that speaks not that God has seven different spirits, but the seven is that number of fullness and perfection. The full, perfect, Holy Spirit who is the life of the church. Remember back to the birthday of the church of Jesus, the day of Pentecost. They were followers of Jesus, like Old Testament people waiting. But then something happened. God poured out the Holy Spirit. Regeneration and life came into them and power in a way that they'd never seen. So different from the saints of the past who lived by faith and walked and obeyed, we now have become not only living stones in God's temple, but you are the temple of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God dwells within. And that gives the church and individual believers our life, the Spirit of God. Well, as we do each week, reflecting back on the trip I took with Taylor Seminary to modern-day Turkey in May, we visited ancient Sardis. So I want to look at Sardis today. There's a picture of one of the town squares in the modern city. Interestingly enough, the city today is almost exactly the same size as it was when Jesus wrote the letter to Sardis. The city center has moved about four kilometers from one place to another just for modern building practices. The city today is named 
Salihli. Easy to say. Salihli is the name of the city. It's just as it was in ancient times at a major crossroads. It is where the road from the seacoast, 50 kilometers away in modern-day Izmir, ancient Smyrna, goes into the interior of Asia Minor, ancient Lydia. In fact, in ancient days, before it was a Roman province or even conquered by Alexander the Great, it was the Lydian Empire. That's what it was called. And Sardis was the capital. It was glorious. That was the height of the city. And they had some kings that were so famous that we even know their names today. Where is it located on our map? We look at each week Sardis as we began and we're going circular. We went from Ephesus north to Smyrna, Izmir. We went up to Pergamum, which is Bergama. We went to Thyatira. And now we're down to Sardis. And Sardis is uh, is about about 50 kilometers southeast of Thyatira. And it's on its way to Philadelphia. That's the ancient road system, the Roman roads that you see there. Sardis today. Well, you visit Sardis and uh, has some beautiful, beautiful excavated uh, archaeological remains of the ancient city. Uh, fortunately, the modern city has moved over a little because many of the cities, like next week in Philadelphia, very few pictures to see in Philadelphia because the modern city is built on the ancient city and nobody wants to give up their local mall or their own home to dig up some old ruins underneath. Not so with Sardis. Sardis, uh, modern city is on the flat part and the ancient city was built on the defensible highlands. Now let's look at the uh, Acropolis in the great temple of Sardis, the next picture. Now you see below, uh, it, it's a little bit hard for you to see here in the, in the sanctuary, that's the ruins of a temple, a temple of Artemis. <clears throat> Not as big as the one in Ephesus, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, but it's an interesting temple. They begin building it about 400 years before Jesus and it was just like the one in Ephesus to be a great Ionic Greek-style temple to Artemis, the fertility goddess. The problem was with Sardis, sometimes they bit off more than they could chew. They began well, but they were known as a city for having trouble bringing things to completion to finish what they started. Well, this temple languished. It uh, became partially, it became complete enough to, to worship Artemis in, but over time, they almost had to bring like another god into it to revive it. They brought Zeus into the temple. Okay, Zeus, your worshipers, they'll give money now. We'll be able to complete the temple. The temple was never completed. It was unfinished. And many of the things you see in ancient Sardis that they were well known for are reflected directly in the letters of Jesus. One of them is works that are go unfinished, works that are incomplete, there's still, there's still drums, which are the sections of the columns that have never been set in place in the ruins of the temple today. Above them in the background, it looks like just a hill, but that's the ancient Acropolis where the king's palace and the fortifications were. You see a bit of the fortifying wall at the top of that hill. And the king that built the Acropolis, he was known, he was proverbial for wealth. His name was King Croesus, and King Croesus of Sardis 
They had a, a, a supply of gold. They had a mountain stream that from the uh, a gold vein would bring uh, gold flakes and nuggets down the mountain, and they were able to gather those, and they became famous for gold. Their gold, though, was was impure. Sometimes it was a mixture of gold and silver, which is called electrum, and oftentimes it was gold and other minerals. And as many of the coins in the ancient world, the gold was never pure. But what King Croesus did, they discovered the secret of unalloyed gold to even separate the gold and silver. And so their coins became the standard of the ancient world of undiluted purity. They were known for that. Their gold was undiluted. Sardis took great pride in that. And they became ultra wealthy. The problem with King Croesus, though, in his fortress is that he became very vain and and very full of himself and the power of his city and his kingdom. He went to Greece, to Delphi, where the famous fortune teller, the Oracle of Delphi, was situated. And the Oracle gave him this fortune. He said, if you cross the frontier of the great Persian empire, if you cross the frontier, an empire will be destroyed. Well, he didn't need to be told twice. He gathered his army, marched to his nearest neighbor, the great Persian empire to the east, crossed the frontier, attacked Persia, was promptly defeated and driven all the way back to Sardis, not realizing in hindsight, 2020, that the kingdom that was going to be destroyed was his own kingdom. Well, who did he invade and attack? A character straight out of the Bible, We see him in the book of Ezra throughout the Old Testament. His name was Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, the greatest of the Persian emperors. And so Cyrus drove Croesus all the way back to Sardis and they surrounded him in his mountain fortress. But that's all they could do. Croesus pulled all of his wealth, everything up into the fortress and he was safe and the Persians couldn't do anything. But they kept watch. And one evening... It's a famous story in history. One evening, they noticed one of the sentries. He was asleep at his post. And as he began to nod off, his head dipped down and his helmet fell off his head. That wouldn't have been a problem, but it fell over the wall of the Acropolis and tumbled down the mountainside. Dink, 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 dink. Well, nobody wants to be caught losing their helmet because they were asleep on duty. So as they watched, the sentry disappeared And then they saw him further down that there was a a secret stairway that nobody could discern from below. And they watched him all the way down. And next thing they know, a small secret postern gate opens. Sentry scurries out, gets his helmet, goes back in. But he's given away the secret of the city. Well, the next day, Cyrus has his army attack in force on one side of the city. And while all of the defenders go to that side... He sends his special forces through that small gate and the city is lost. A lost because they were asleep. Now you think that's bad enough. They became famous for that defeat. But it happened another time where somebody else was asleep at the switch and the city fell again. It kind of became a habit of Sardis. If you want to conquer a city, go to Sardis. They fell five different times. Alexander the Great, Antiochus III, Cyrus the Great, You want to make uh, your name as a conqueror? Go to Sardis. They got conquered over and over. 
Well, not only the Acropolis was important, but we drove down around off of this high area to the area where the people actually lived, and we went through a restored marketplace. Look at this line of shops. There were like 27 ancient shops. They're not very big. You know, they have a little window. Interestingly, I don't know if you can see any of the pictures. They have, they have heat. Those are heated shops. They have pipelines for, for uh, warm air from the nearby uh, big bathhouse that they would pump through them in winter. Fascinating. 27 separate shops have been excavated there in Sardis. The interesting thing is that in many of them, you can tell the religion of the shopkeeper because of the carvings. You know, the people with Hebrew names, they were shopkeepers, their menorahs carved. As you see, those great big dyeing vats to dye wool because Sardis was the center for woolen garment production. Look at the crosses carved on them. Of those 27 shops, six were definitely run by Jewish shopkeepers, 10 by Christians. Now you say, well, how did they do that? You've been telling us every week that Christians couldn't be part of the marketplace because in those days, and it was in Sardis as well, you had to burn incense and say that Caesar was Lord. Well, it's obvious that the Christians in Sardis had no qualms about that, that they would go along to get along, that they compromised on their values to be able to succeed in business and in the marketplace. It's one of the things the shop says. Right around the corner from the shops, you find an amazing outer court. This is a courtyard, as you see here, of a, of a synagogue, not just a synagogue. Remember, we never found a synagogue yet in Ephesus. This is the largest known synagogue in the ancient world outside of the land of Israel. It's in Sardis. Do you realize that Sardis is mentioned in the Old Testament? It goes by its ancient Persian name. It's called, it's called Sepharda. And Sepharda, we read in the book of Obadiah chapter 20, that the exiles of Sepharda are mentioned. Those are the, the Jewish exiles when they were scattered, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when they went into captivity and were scattered as the ten tribes among the nations. An enormous population of Jews wound up in Sarda. Because remember, after Cyrus conquered the city, he built a road from his capital in Persia, the royal road, all the way to Sardis. That was one end of it. And it was full of Jewish people. They were very important. Largest synagogue in the ancient world. It's a beautiful outer court covered in mosaics. Look at the great urn there. They don't know if that urn was just decorative or if it was used for cleansing. That's the next picture shows the urn up close. There it is. Beautiful, all found on site. But you go into that synagogue and it is incredible. Look at it. It's, it's, it's now covered because it was so hot to be out in the sun. They've put uh, an awning over it, uh, uh, an artificial roof. But the next picture shows the size of the main hall of the synagogue. Incredible, elaborate mosaics and wall carvings, marble and precious stones. It was big enough at 150, uh, 150 meters. It was big enough to hold a thousand people in worship largest synagogue we've ever seen. Far bigger even than the ones I've ever seen in Israel. Fascinating thing about this, there's a number of fascinating things. One of them is the altar. There is a Roman altar in the synagogue. They found it in place. You know it's Roman because of an eagle. The eagle's holding lightning bolts. That is the Roman eagle. This was an altar from a Roman 
temple that has been repurposed in the synagogue and used as the Torah desk. They would unroll the scroll of God's Word and read from this. And again, they seem, just as the Christians had no problem getting along and just kind of doing whatever to get along, the Jews didn't seem to have quite the sensibilities as their more thorny and prickly uh, co-religionists in other parts of the empire. Uh, they didn't have problem with graven images. They have lions in their synagogue. They have eagles in the synagogue. And they... Uh, they just blended in. And yet, something fascinating is the Torah Ark. On the eastern side, long before uh, Muslims would look toward Mecca and pray, God's people always oriented and built their synagogues so they could pray toward Jerusalem. And they would often put the Ark, which was a cabinet for the great Torah scroll, toward Jerusalem. We found the Torah Ark and it says something fascinating on it. Speaking of God's Word, which was contained within, it tells them these words. Open. For, yeah, it says, it says, these four words. It says, find, open, read, observe. That's carved around it. Find the Word of God, open it, read it, and observe it. Do what it says. Now keep that in mind as we come to Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. He gives them almost identical instructions than that which would be familiar to them from the local synagogue. Read and observe the Word of God. Well, one of the strangest things about this synagogue is its neighbor. It is built right next to to the gymnasium, the giant Roman bathhouse and exercise yard. That's the wall of the synagogue to the left. Their windows would overlook the courtyard. Now, why is that strange? Because you know what they wore in Greek exercise yards and Roman exercise yards? They were pagans. They celebrated the beauty of the human form and they wore nothing, nothing, nothing. And the Jews didn't seem to have a problem with it. It is one of the strangest places where Christianity, Judaism, and paganism is all mixed together. Unlike its gold and silver, it's not undiluted. It's very compromised in Sardis. Well, that gymnasium, as we close in, incredible architecture. You go into the forecourt. You see the carvings and the dedications above. You go through, and all of the ancient baths haven't been excavated, but the last picture is of right through that arch is a giant pool, the Frigidarium. I love the ancient baths. Depending on how hot a room was, that's how they named it. The hot room is the Caldarium, and the cold room is the Frigidarium. And the medium lukewarm room is called the tepidarium tepid and we'll get to that in a couple weeks in laodicea the tepid church but that is sardis incredible some of the things we see there well jesus as he writes them i'd love to share with you his commendation how he commended and praised and encouraged the christians of sardis because looking at their their the, the remains of their, their businesses and so forth and their reputation, you think they're doing well. I'd like to share it with you, but there is no praise of the Christians in Sardis. No commendation. Jesus moves right into accusation to this church. 
He tells them as we pick up again in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the second half, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. What hard words to hear from their Lord and Master. (laughs) That this church, rather than being vibrant, filled with life, is on life support. This is a dead church. It's a surprise to them because they have a reputation. But it seems that they're living on their past deeds, their past reputation. Famous Christian teacher Vance Havner once said of Christian movements, it begins often with a man, becomes a movement, then becomes a machine going through the motions, and it ends up a monument. Man, movement, machine, monument. A gravestone. And that's where Sardis was. They were just a monument to past life. Oh, there were still people there going through the motions. Maybe a few of them were still keeping the church machine chugging along. But the life was gone. And that spiritual life that that Jesus mentions, you think you're alive, but you're dead. We know that comes again from that sevenfold, full, perfect Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of the key chapters of the New Testament, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. That life comes from Christ through His Spirit. By grace you're saved through faith, Paul continues in that chapter. Paul again in the book of Romans chapter 8, a wonderful passage speaking of this. He says in verse 9 of Romans chapter 8, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you in you. The Spirit brings life. So it seems that the Spirit has been grieved by the church in Sardis. Their actions, their unfulfilled potential, they're going along with the things of the world to get along. It seems that it's grieved the Spirit and the flame has died low to the point of going out in this church. What can be done? think you're alive, but you're dead. Well, fortunately, we serve a God who may appear dead, but He can wake us up and bring us back. And that is the corrective statement, the admonition, the correction is to wake up. As a pastor, this is a view that we often have, you know, like from behind, a person may seem agreeable, but from my point of view, I see that you're asleep and you're nodding off, you know. Oh, we all have funny stories. At the pastor's conference last week, 
we were able to tell funny stories. And it was such a good time just to share uh, in that activity. Many of the funny stories surrounded the baptismal tank, as you can imagine. But oftentimes, you know, the snores and people falling over asleep, it just it just does our hearts good. Sometimes, especially farmers who work late, they need to catch up on a little bit of their sleep. And my voice is so calming. They can just drift right off. It's like watching golf on television sometime, you know. But Jesus says, wake up, wake up. We continue to read in Revelation chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Talk about fitting into Sardis, incomplete. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. The thief in the night. The thief in the night is often used by Jesus throughout his public teaching to describe God coming in judgment or catching people asleep or unprepared. In adult Sunday school, we're beginning an Advent series. We talked about Simeon who was told that he would see the Messiah before his death. And so he was watchful. He was watchful, looking for the first coming of the Messiah. And we're called, like Sardis, to be awake and watchful for the second coming of Jesus. And not just sit back and wait, as Billy Graham shared with us this morning from the late 1950s in a crusade in Australia. We're called to be alert and watch and be ready and let Jesus find us busy sharing His love with a hurting world. Remember, obey, repent. Boy, that sounds a lot to me like the commands of the Sardis Torah scroll to find, open, read, and then observe it, obey it. Don't just hear it, do it. That's what Jesus says. That's the answer. That's what waking up is, not just to hear the word of God, but make it part of you and live it out in your daily life. Who puts it better than James in James chapter 1 in verse 22? Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Don't let your Bibles gather dust. Make it part of you. It's not trivia. It's our life. It's the bread of life. We need to consume it and live it and make it part of us. And that watchfulness reflecting on Jesus' teaching of the thief coming in the night, that goes all the way back in his teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, the great uh, eschatology chapter where Jesus unpacks for them God's future plans for the world. And he concludes that as they're excited about the return of the Messiah. He said, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. 
Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. He's talking about us now. And tells the one at the door, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. How appropriate to Sardis, the city that was known for falling asleep on its watch and losing its freedom because of it. Jesus says to the church, wake up. Keep watch. Hear the word, but do it. Unleash the power of God through love and service in the world around you. And His promise, His promise to those who overcome as He closes each letter with an encouraging promise includes white garments. Those white garments you see, that is the traditional. We would look at that and say, well, I think that's like the Roman toga. Well, that's an older word, but that's not the correct word. That is the standard outer garment from the time of Christ throughout the Roman Empire. You know that the best and most of those woolen outer garments where they came from? Came from Sardis. And Sardis was able to make these beautiful white outer garments. It was like a large rectangular cloak that was was wrapped around and tied in a certain way and different areas tied there a different way. They were called hematian. Hematian. There's your, there's your little historical tidbit of the week. The outer garment worn from ancient Lydian times. And Jesus, of course, says that his followers wore white garments, white robes, because white speaks of the purity, holiness, undiluted purity. Something that the people of Sardis, they didn't practice at all. Though they were famous for it in the past, that undiluted purity, they had lost it in their spiritual lives. Jesus' promise in Revelation chapter 3 begins in verse 4. He says, Yet, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A white garment, citizenship in heaven. People read that and they said, is that Jesus threatening them? By taking their name out of the book of life? No, that's a promise. He's promising that unlike Sardis, who at various points were removed from the citizenship roles of the empire, that his people would never be blotted out. That they who overcome would persevere. It's a precious promise that we have life, citizenship in heaven. And we look forward as we see the saints throughout the book of Revelation having those white garments that reflect on our undiluted commitment to Jesus. He says something about worthy. Does that mean you have to work hard to be worthy of God's love? Hmm. Scripture says you can't earn God's love. 
as we saw in the book of Ephesians, it's by grace. It's a gift. But you need to live a life in keeping with who you truly are. You're a child of God adopted into the very family of God. You're a sinner who's now a saint. Your sins have been forgiven. You need to live a life that reflects that. Send a clear message to those around us to give them hope that they too can have a Savior and have their sins forgiven. Again, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul records in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He speaks of a a worthy life. It's in keeping with your salvation. And we close with this. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He then spells it out. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is not an arduous life filled with drudgery and works. This is a life, true life, abundant living, a life of love and joy, a life of hope in hopeless times, a life that is truly alive. I've often told people that I apologize to them in advance. I say, you know, you hear us pastors sometimes and you come away discouraged because you say the, the Christian life, it, it, it seems beyond me. I know what I struggle with day to day. I can't live the Christian life. I apologize. I'm sorry, but none of us can. We can't live the Christian life. All we can do is surrender and let Christ live His life through us. Let Jesus Live the Christian life in you and through you. (laughs) Like John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. It's letting God point out those areas that we need to yield to His Spirit and His Lordship. Those are lives that are worthy in keeping, that resemble our calling, a life worthy to wear the white robe. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we read a letter, a stern letter to a church in Sardis. A church that thinks they're alive, has a glorious past like their city, but is just a mere shadow of what they should be. Lord, though they are spiritually asleep, though they are asleep at the wheel and seemingly dead, Lord, You can wake them up by Your indwelling Spirit. And the power of Your Word, Lord, they just need to hear it, remember it, obey it. To repent means to turn their lives around, no longer follow the way of the world, no longer dilute the message of Jesus with other messages. Father, Jesus' message is exclusive. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Father, it's never to be alloyed or mixed with false religions, with human works, even good works. We can't add to the salvation 
that was finished on the cross by Jesus. We can accept it by grace through faith in Him. And Father, as Your followers, may we commit ourselves fresh and new to love Your Word. And not just hear it, but to live it. To love our neighbors and to serve them humbly and with love. Not our love, which we come to an end of so quickly, but with the love of Jesus. Father, dismiss us from this place of worship and fellowship to our places of ministry, whether it be at work, at home, at school. May we shine God's love. May the salt never lose its savor. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.